Welcome to another episode of the Hidden Money Podcast. I'm Kevin Schneider, joined with my partner, Mike Pine. And today we have the privilege and honor to be joined by Chuck Mayfield of MatchGrade. Chuck, welcome to the show. Howdy, Kevin. Glad to be here. Mike, good to see you, man. Yeah, and Chuck, yeah, Chuck is one of our valued partners here and he's the magic behind all of our tax planning we get to be the heroes on the front on the end part of an engagement by telling our clients how much tax they save but we cannot do that in the real estate realm without our friend chuck here so chuck tell us about this magic that you hold and how you can help clients save money in real estate by doing what you do i have a cousin in nigeria i'm just kidding um <laughs> It's plus segregation. What it basically is, it's like doing an appraisal on a property, but rather than determining the value of an overall building or the condition, what we're looking for is how to carve out of that building items that we can classify as personal property or items that we can classify as land improvement, which is real property like a building, but has a better depreciable life. Before we get into how we do it, you've probably been through this before to make sure we're on the same page. The aim here is to optimize depreciation deductions for your taxes. So if you purchase a short-term rental house, you can carve out whatever the land is at because land doesn't depreciate. And you can set the rest of that stuff up with a 39-year life because basically you're running a small hotel. And Uncle Sam will thank you and shake your hand and everything's fine. Well, what we're allowed to do by law is to break that down a bit further. The first place we'd look is land improvements. So let's just say you have a really nice five-bedroom vacation house in Orlando, and it has a big old pole in the backyard. Well, that swimming pool is a land improvement. It's real properties like the building, but land improvements in a 15-year life, whereas that building has a 39. Same for a fence. Speaking of Florida, they'll have covers over those pools. That qualifies. Landscaping is usually pretty out there. Any number of things you would expect to see outside a house that are attached directly to land. Then inside the house, you can find items that are there because they're accessory to your business, which in this case is running an Airbnb, or things that are considered impermanent by Uncle Sam because of the method by which they're attached to a building. You know, let me caveat us here right now to say this is tax law, so... If it deviates from logic just a little bit, don't let that bother you too much. Just a um, little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. For example, this is the one, every time we give a presentation, the conference room would laugh, is one of the big ticket items that's removable or reusable is carpet or vinyl flooring. You, in their eyes, you can pick that carpet up, put it in their house, and everybody's happy. Now, whether in fact you ever intend on doing that doesn't matter. The courts have determined that you can, and so therefore that carpet is personal property and it has a five-year life instead of a 39. The same goes for pretty much any kind of flooring except tile because tile is set down with mortar and not with glue or stretched over a tax strip. That is permanent, is what it is. So nowadays, a lot of people use that LVT, the luxury vinyl tile, and well, they should. It looks really good. If anything happens to one of those little rectangles, you can replace it very easily. Um, it's not quite as hard in your feet the winter as tile is, and there's a lot of upside to it. And personal property. So there you are. The other big ticket item usually is the kitchen. You're going to have cabinets in there. You got appliances in there. You got plumbing in there. You got electrical in there. All of that's personal property because this is an accessory to your business of renting a house overnight or over a couple of nights, however that may be. There are other things in the house like window blinds or ceiling fans or power and connections for TVs or laundry. There's other things that add up, but those two are your big tickets. 
so even if we didn't have bonus depreciation, which we'll leave out for right now, you've carved down a fairly substantial portion of this building to depreciate over 15 or five years at an accelerated rate. And so that's to your benefit. Now, lately, we've been very spoiled and blessed and have 100% bonus depreciation. The legal definition of that is anything that has a tax life of 20 years or less is eligible to be written off completely in the current year, which is going to be everything we find. Now, bonus has been set to expire before and always been renewed. The last time they renewed it, they said 100% up for, I think it's five years. So in 2023, we're going down to 80%. I'm starting to have some phone calls. People say, it's going away. Like, yeah, no, it's acting like it wants to, but it's gradual and 80% is still pretty good. Now, if you want to wage a side bet, I still think that at some point this year, both Democrat and Republican congressmen are realize, wait a minute, bonus is going away and they'll extend it again. I just think they will because they always seem to. And it does seem like property ownership is something that transcends politics, which is nice. <laughs> I hope it keeps doing that. So, well, before we get into the conversation of Chuck and what it is he does and that magic he brings, Mike, would you give some real estate tax 101 and some basic high level of what even cost segregation is and what benefit it even brings? Yeah. For people who aren't familiar with cost segregation, let's start with what is depreciation? The IRS, if you buy an asset that has a useful life of more than one year, like a house, the IRS says that has a useful life more than one year. You cannot deduct the entire cost of it as a deductible expense, but we'll let you depreciate it. So for example, let's say we buy a house for $450,000 and the land we agree is worth 60,000. So you have $390,000 that's attributable just to the building. Let's assume there's no land improvements or anything on it. You have $390,000 that you paid for that building and the IRS says, if it's a commercial asset or commercial real property, which we'll, we'll assume it is as a short-term rental, just like a hotel, you can depreciate it over 39 years. Meaning, if it's worth $390,000, we'll let you take a deduction of $10,000 per year for the next 39 years. Well, $10,000 per year is nice, but it's not nearly as nice as maybe $100,000 in the first year or more. So... What a cost segregation study does, and I have no idea how they do it, but that's why we have Chuck. He does them. <laughs> a cost segregation study, this, they go with basically engineering methodology, and they go in and say, okay, on this $390,000 house, we have all kinds of things the IRS says has a shorter useful life. We have flooring. Not all flooring, but most flooring. That's got a seven-year life. We've got cabinetry, countertops. Those all have shorter life. We have appliances. And the IRS says, hey, as long as you follow what we agree is reasonable, some methodology that they've agreed to or that tax courts have agreed to, we'll let you carve those things out. And once you get the cost of those out, you can either bonus depreciate it immediately or you get to depreciate it over a much quicker period. So instead of getting $10,000 a year in a deduction, you can get a lot more. And that's what we're going to unpack here in this episode. Chuck, let's talk about bonus depreciation for a minute. You mentioned that you think, and I agree completely with you, it's probably going to be renewed. When was the first time we had bonus depreciation? Wasn't it right after 9-11? It was. New York was a mess and people were scared. And so I believe back then it was 
Yeah, 30 and then 50 after they renewed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to pause for a second, the way bonus depreciation works, let's just say that of this property, we find $100,000 in five-year property. If we didn't take bonus depreciation, that's going to accelerate over that five years at a double declining balance, which is nice. What bonus does is takes a percentage of that for immediate write-off. The remaining balance of that writes off over five years. Still nice. Nicer, though, because of that 100000 now you write off 30 and you would apply the double declining balance to the remaining 70 And then it went away for a little while, came back in a way to 50%. And then I think it was 2011, it kicked up to 100. And 100 is nice. Basically, 100 is saying anything you find is an expense. But when they did that in 2011, it was set to sunset. And then it got bumped up. And I know Obama bumped it up and the Trump really did. So it does seem to be something that benefits Americans and not members of one affiliation or the other, which is nice. And so for that reason, I just feel like it's going to get bumped back to 100. The reason they've done that before is to stimulate the economy. I mean, if you look around, there's a lot of empty rental space out there. There's some construction going, but anything they can do to stimulate the economy and keep people growing and keep people leasing new buildings and put jobs out, that's what this is designed to do. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, I think we can all agree that our politicians in DC like being reelected. And when the economy's not performing well, they want to be able to say, hey, we helped the economy with some kind of tangible result, tangible legislation. And I suspect that's why, because every time as soon as we start slowing in growth or potentially in a recession, whether you think we are in or not right now, Congress has said, hey, we need to do something to improve the economy, both Democrats, both Republicans, and they reenact it. It's proven itself. It's been around for 20 plus years, and it's proven itself as an economic engine and a driver for our economy. When we're talking cost segregation and bonus depreciation, I want to reiterate, and we've covered this on prior podcasts and bonus content, but when we're talking bonus depreciation, we're not generating additional deductions. Instead, we're just playing with the timing to defer more taxes into the future. That's all we can keep doing. We can't eliminate tax with cost segregation and bonus, but what we're doing is in Mike's example of $390,000, you're owed that $10,000 over 39 years. All we're doing is we're depreciating $100,000 in year one. Then you get the remaining $290,000 depreciated over the 39 years, essentially. If the cost segregation came back with 100000 being qualified, improvement property and eligible for bonus. So you're still owed the exact same amount of depreciation, but time value of money tells us if we can get a $100,000 deduction today versus 10000 that's going to save you another $30,000 in tax. So we're going to get $30,000 of tax savings today instead of a few thousand dollars of tax savings spread out over 39 years. You could see the cash impact that holds. Instead of getting little drops in your bucket over time, you're going to get poured in year one. And then in the future years, you're going to get smaller drops, but it's not going to be as noticeable so we really want to free up cash flow today to either reinvest into the economy with growing your own portfolio, buying additional properties, and now you're snowballing a real estate portfolio with tax savings utilizing cost segregation. Yeah, that's one of the things I always say is, this is what I can bring you to the table. You need to talk to your CPA to see what this is going to do for you. 
they know your tax position. I do not know your tax position. So I'm, I'm very careful about that. One of the things I learned about working with you guys is y'all have chosen real estate as something in which to specialize. And that's why you've gotten into it. Nevertheless, it just does demonstrate that you won't break even. You won't be behind. You'll be ahead by doing this. Yeah. Uh, especially in an inflationary market. I mean, if you're able to generate that cash flow down, put a down payment in your next house, now you've locked that in. And so you're in a good spot. Yeah. You want to be working with your CPA because the engineer, they're kind of our hired gun. It's like the CPA generally will say, hey, I could save you a ton in tax. I can't do the work for you. I need to bring in my buddy Chuck. Chuck is going to come in and he's going to do all the detail review. He's going to bulletproof this thing, basically. Chuck will give us a report that's way too many pages thick with a lot of lingo even I don't understand. But in the event that you're audited, you're going to be thanking God that you had Chuck do that because we're going to have all of our methodology in there. We're going to have pictures. We're going to have every piece of evidence of why we took that position. So it's very important to work with a COSEG specialist that knows what they're doing. I would be very weary of DIY COSEGs out there. If you Google cost segregations, there are some services online where you put in your property value, you put in the dates, and it'll spit out something. Well, first, that's not as strong in an audit just because you did it yourself. I just wouldn't feel comfortable defending a cost segregation with that. Secondly, it's probably going to be very conservative. You don't have a human being going to the property, which, you know, Chuck doesn't always go to the property, but you're going to have an actual engineer looking at the details of this, doing the calculations. That holds a lot more weight in an audit than just some formula-based website. So Chuck, can you speak to that a little bit of the different kinds of cost segregations offered? Because if someone buys a rental property and they want to get into cost segregation, their first option may be Googling it and they might have 50 options presented to them. What are the different cost segs that are offered and what, which one do you offer and why? Okay, good question. Yeah, starting, I guess, with what you're talking about, I haven't actually gone to look through one of them, but I do know there's the one where you basically fill out a form. What kind of flooring? How big is your house? What'd you pay yeah. for it? And it spits an answer out. I haven't heard one way or the other about whether the th these things are an audit target or not. Maybe they get away with them. I don't like it. Every building's different. Now, I'll step into the next thing. On the other end of the spectrum, you can have somebody get a full set of blueprints, do a full site visit, and literally estimate everything. All the electrical that qualifies, all the electrical that doesn't qualify. Typically, what we do is we do break the building down to components, electrical, plumbing, mechanical, and so forth, and then estimate what qualifies and leave the rest in 39 year. And so actually working one of those things all the way out, we determined that our methodology was pretty good, that we were right about where we normally are. So it's been a while since I've done one, but I have that done a proof of concept, which leads me to what we do is it's not a full engineering. It's a mostly engineering for lack of a better phrase. I will go through and identify whatever items qualify as personal property or land improvement. And then I will use nationally recognized estimating guides like RS Means or Marshall and Swift to find the value of it. All those guides are very specific about what item it is, what part of the country it is, what year is placed in service. So there are steps that you have to go through to find the correct price for, say, a duplex outlet. And so what I'll do is quantify those things, go through those guides, produce that price, and then we'll take the building, we'll produce a model of what it would cost to construct that from the ground up from scratch, divide that into the various components, electrical, concrete, wooden, plastics, et cetera, and then deduct out what we find. And so you have a document that has these calculations 
that shows that, yeah, the overall building electrical on this building is $80,000 and we found 25 or 30 that qualify. That's about right because you have all this power in a kitchen. You can go to the panel box and look. In a house that has 20 breakers between kitchen and laundry, you're going to have half of them, just about. And then you factor in one for televisions or you have outdoor lighting, whatever. It fits. It's not something out of the ordinary. I have not had to argue one of these in front of the IRS. I did do a very extensive study on a ranch out east of College Station once where we were bringing like yard equipment into the equation. I did a lot of estimating I normally do. It got audited and then I never heard another word. So presumably it's all right. And as far as why, the report is designed to be a standalone where it has citations from cases over the years which have explained why carpet qualifies, explains why kitchen cabinetry qualifies and so on and so forth. So that report is designed to be a standalone document. No, that's great, Chuck, because, you know, when, when we file tax returns, and I mean, we do how many hundreds of cost segs with you, but every time we file a tax return, we show our work. We take your cost seg as a PDF, whether it be 100 pages, 200 pages, whatever, I don't care how big the file is. We attach it to the tax return and we submit it to the IRS with the position, you know, being taken as bonus and we just say, okay, we're taking bonus on this property. Here's the cost seg up front. Don't bother us. Just give my client the refund. If you want to look into the cost seg yourself, here it is. We're going to show our work up front. And, you know, your reports are so detailed and you got the case studies in there and everything that we have never heard of any peep from the IRS either. And so maybe that'll prevent future audits as if they want to see the cost seg report. Here it is up front. So, Chuck, you do these incredible reports and calculations figuring out the value of buildings and land improvements but we can't depreciate land that's the one thing the irs won't let us take a deduction for is the cost of our land how do taxpayers who are doing a cost segregation study how do they go about figuring out how much of their purchase price to allocate to land one common way to do it is go to your county appraisal district so many of those are online right now they're really easy to see sometimes they're lower even than I think they should be, and sometimes they're higher. It seems to be an industry standard for most properties to take 10%. On the residential side, a lot of people are just getting into all this, and so they don't really have their own opinion. But on the commercial side, a lot of those guys do, and a lot of them like 10%, and I haven't gotten any pushback on it, so my default value is 10. Now, if it's California, my default value is more like 30, 35 even. What are the actual rules or guidance from the IRS or Treasury Department say when you're doing a cost seg, what should you use to figure out land? Are you, are you familiar with any case precedent on that? Somebody buys a lot with a house on it, knowing they're going to get rid of that house and expand their commercial business. Well, that house is part of land. You bought land, even though it did have a house. Contrary to that, we had one in Santa Monica one time where somebody bought one because they were going to put a business in it and they tried and it just didn't work. The next year, they raised the building and built their new one. We depreciated that. We feel like we have a very strong argument. They gave it a go. They put inventory in it. They tried it. They just didn't like it. So they, since they depreciated that over one period, not only didn't have to call that building land, they wrote the building, the value of the building off. So that was very favorable to them. And I don't think they just did that as a tax trick. If they did, they hit it really well. I mean, I think they really wanted to keep the house and really make it work. It just didn't. So that's something to consider if somebody's buying a property with a building on it and knowing they're getting rid of that building, unfortunately, you just bought expensive land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what we see a lot with the short terms, though, I'm going to ask you this question because this comes up a lot is, let's say I target a property 
and I love the location, but it's kind of a shack. It's not up to date. There's not a lot of, I mean, the carpet, you got shack carpet, you got the popcorn ceilings, you got everything, right? It's not ready for market. So how do you walk a client through that on your side saying, I bought a property for $300,000. I'm going to demo 50% of this house, basically everything on the inside. I'm going to gut it. And then I'm going to put in $200,000 of improvements, new countertops, new everything. When does the cost segregation process start? Because there could be two trains of thought. Do we do the cost seg at the very beginning? And we know what the value of what you're going to demo is, and then we can dispose of that during demo. And then we account for the improvements independently. When you pay for a contractor, you get a formalized invoice or an itemized invoice. So you know what these things cost and you account for it properly. Or do you just wait to do the cost seg till the very end when the demo's done, the improvements are done, then do we bring in Chuck to do the cost seg at that point? Okay. Yeah. That's very common actually. If you buy a building and you know you're going to demo everything, I don't know if they formalize this, but my understanding is their position is the things you're taking out of that building have no value. So ignore it altogether. My thinking is you buy a building, you buy a building that has cash. You paid for it, whether you like them or not. So the way I'll generally treat that is do a cost seg on that building the way it looked. Take a snapshot of it the day you buy it, do a cost seg on it. And then we'll have a look at the remodel costs, which put an asterisk near that. We need to circle back to remodel in a minute. Now, if you bought a house, rented it for a couple of years, and then you did a demo, then you have the opportunity with a 100% bonus, you've already written off everything we find for personal property anyway. But if you remove a wall or you do something like that or remove stuff in a bathroom because you're going to remodel it, we can take what's called the partial disposition, which you alluded to, where you carve out that value from the acquisition and write it off. So the trick there is this thing had to be depreciated for a while and in use. If you walk into it, start taking it out, we cannot do a partial disposition. People out there might. Some providers may disagree with that. But to me, that's aggressive beyond necessary. I just, I wouldn't feel comfortable with it. There'd be a very big contract saying, if this gets audited, you're on your own, basically. Yeah. I just don't agree. Let me unpeel the, or unpack a little bit partial disposition or partial asset disposition for a second. So... Again, you buy an asset and you're depreciating over a period of time. Like a roof is a typically a 39-year property or 27 and a half on residential. You replace a roof. It's a, it happens early on. Part of that roof you haven't depreciated. You're replacing it. If you're disposing of it, there's a way to get a deduction, a tax deduction for the what you're disposing. And that's partial asset disposition, right? How does that work, Chuck? How do you figure out? Let's say... I buy a 39-year property, year two, I replace the roof, we have hail damage or whatever. How does that work? All right, well, in your position there, I would go back to that project, figure out what the value of the existing roof was, and then provide you a report saying this much is taken out. So you would then figure out what the remaining depreciable life of that roof was, looking at your schedule, and it would be an expense for that year. Now, roofs is a curveball, though. If it's residential rental property, what you said is the way it'll work. If it's commercial property, which a short-term rental, if you treat it as a 39-year small hotel, you get a Section 179 deduction for a roof. So they treat roofs favorably. So you're saying there's hidden money in telling your cost seg specialist that you did a remodel. <laughs> Everybody wins. 
the sooner you tell me about it, the better, or if you're planning on one. And I'm trying to be generous about that. I mean, there's usually not a whole lot of work on my end and analyze the remodel side because they typically keep pretty good detail on what the costs are. And if somebody says, I just spent $10,000 on vinyl flooring, there's not going to be a lot of arguing over that. You have an invoice from Fred's vinyl store and right. it shows $10,000 for flooring it. 902, whatever, is what it is. There's not going to be a lot of fighting over that. Yeah. So, Chuck, let's say a listener has had a property, rental property, for some years now, and they never heard of cost seg, and they hear it on this podcast. You don't have to do the cost segregation and get to the advantages in the first year always, do you? Can you? Let's say I've had a rental property five years. I've just found out what a cost seg is. What are my options with you? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's We used to call them look-back studies on commercial. What you'll do is you will figure out what that building looked like when it was purchased or built, and you will cost segregate it just like you would as if you'd done it that day. For tax purposes, you get to treat it that way. So if it happened during a time when 100% bonus was in effect, great. You get bonus and everything we find. Even if it didn't, though, if it was back when there was 50% or if it was far enough back when there wasn't bonus, what you're allowed to do is catch up all the depreciation you would have taken if you had done that cost segregation study from day one. I'm calling catch up depreciation. I think it's line item 4E1A on your tax return. There's two ways of going about it. If it's fairly recent, you could amend your return if that's what you feel like doing, or you can file an IRS form 3115, change an accounting method. It's an automatic approval. It's another thing that's not a red flag issue for audit. Now, for individuals with rental homes, that's something you talk to them about, see which one's less painful. For a big commercial property, a multi-partner LLC, they never want to amend. You do not want to amend returns. That's way more headache than it's worth. And so why not use a 3115? If you've been at this for a while and you have some rental properties, we can absolutely still do cost segregations. Depending on the situation, that may require a physical site visit to walk through the building with the owner so they can point out, yeah, this was this way we bought it, mm -hmm. now it's this way. So mm -hmm. you can go back and figure out what that snapshot was that you purchased. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's available. Yeah. There's a lot of logistics when doing that. And as you alluded to, Chuck, you don't have to go back. Let's say you've had a rental property for five years and we're going to do a cost seg back five years ago. You don't have to amend five years of tax returns. First of all, you can't. Statute of limitations already run dry. So you got to come up with a different methodology and reasoning on the tax return and way to report that depreciation for the past five years. And if you go to hiddenmoney.com forward slash bonus content, we're going to go into a little bit more of the details of if you've owned a rental property for a year or two plus years, and we're now going to do a cost sec. How do we most effectively do that? And how do we report that on our taxes? And I'll walk through the form Chuck just alluded to, the 3115 accounting method change, the 481A adjustment. We'll talk a little bit about lendability too and how that would affect it. We'll go into all that in the bonus content. So please check that out if that interests you. Well, Chuck, it's been an absolute pleasure just talking through the details of cost segregation studies with you. And we are just so thankful for our working business relationship we have. And you provide so much benefit to mm -hmm. our client base and we're just a great team. And so if anyone listening needs more information from Chuck or you want to explore the possibility of cost segregation, email is the best way to reach him. It's just chuck at matchgradellc.com. 
send him an email and talk, rope in your CPA. It's very important that your CPA work alongside Chuck. Chuck is a master of his craft in his space of engineering and doing the actual cost segregation study, but that needs to be incorporated into your tax return. And just because you have rental properties does not mean a cost segregation and bonus depreciation is deductible. That needs to come from your CPA. So working alongside an expert like Chuck is going to be invaluable with for a CPA. So please reach out to Chuck. And if you don't have a CPA who is specializing in real estate or you just have some questions, please reach out to us through hiddenmoney.com. You can contact us through the website. So Chuck, thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to many more years of bonus depreciation. Yes, th- thank you very much, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> 